Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 3, 6 through 11a. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, This Sunday we are leaderless. All our pastors have abandoned us. Uh, But thankfully Jesus is still here. Uh, So it's my duty and pleasure to introduce Confessor. Uh, He's one of the members of the preaching cohort that uh, we put together. Um, And the purpose of that is to gather more voices um, for the proclamation of the gospel. Um, And Confessor in his family are um, becoming increasingly more beautiful to me. Uh, He's becoming a closer friend uh, to me, and I love him very much. And so let's give Confessor a round of applause. (laughs) Well, um, it's certainly different uh, being up front. So if you see me shaking, it is because I am nervous and... uh, it's been an incredibly long time since I actually preached uh, in front of a group of people, and uh, I'm very uh, humbled and honored to actually be up here. Um, just to share a little bit about myself, um, my name is Confessor Martinez. That really is my, my first name, and uh, no, I won't show you my license to, to prove it. Um, I've been married to Kim. Uh, it's going to be about 23 years this August 14th. Now, uh, praise be to God. And together we have uh, nine kids. Um, one is, <laughs> yeah, we have, we have one waiting for us uh, in heaven. Uh, um, but uh, probably the most, probably the most the, uh, exciting thing about us is that Kim is not pregnant. Um, <laughs> usually when I tell people that we have nine kids, it's always followed. Oh, she's pregnant again. Well, this time, you know, she's not pregnant, at least, at least not yet. Um, but let me pray again, and then uh, we'll get into the we'll get into the word again. Um, Father, we look to you, and we look to you alone. Father, we know that our hearts often uh, stray from you. Father, does this bent inside of us to search other ways of comfort and other means to see uh, how we can be satisfied in life? But, Father, you're so gracious and glorious to us uh, that you meet us where we're at continuously. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much. In your name I pray. Amen. And so I'm going to start again by just reading reading through the text a little bit, uh, starting with verse 7 in uh, Genesis 3. It says, And in the eyes of both, then the eyes of both were open, and that they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. 
Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. And I kind of want to stop there because there's, it goes back and forth actually what that section of scripture means. Um, the presence of the Lord was it actually a physical manifestation of the Lord? Was it Christ incarnate that was walking in the garden? What kind of how what kind of clothes did they fashion for themselves, and all that stuff? You know, what does it mean in the cool of day? I don't care about any of that. I just want to stick with the text and just kind of look at it for what it for what it is. That we know that at this moment, um, after creation, God has given Adam and Eve uh, Adam's command: Do not eat from this tree. Satan tricks Eve. She eats of the fruit. She gives it to her husband, and everything that God had created up until that point, it now is beginning to crumble. <laughs> all around them and for the first time their eyes are open and they see exactly what Satan was really promising and now they could see and now they do have the knowledge of good and evil and because of this they're so incredibly overwhelmed by what they know now that they no longer can see each other the way Christ or God intended of intended for them to see each other now they actually live with this great sense of shame. It actually goes beyond guilt. And you see actually an acceleration from guilt to full-blown shame that they literally and figuratively cover themselves and then they hear the Lord walk. And I I love that imagery. And for me, you know, I prefer to think of it as literally God walking among his creation, taking a walk with the meeting him in a place where he probably had walked with them so many times before, knowing what had actually taken place. And we see here in Scripture that we don't even see a hint of urgency in God meeting his creation. And there's this, this sense of, one, we already know that God is fully aware of everything that's going to happen. But he's not revealing this necessarily to Adam and Eve. So he's approaching them almost like another day. Another day of expectation of hanging out with the people that he created. So he walks in the cool of the day, which, again, is just an, an, another awesome segment of scripture. Um, and he's down the same road, down the same path. He doesn't see them. He knows where they're at. And then he calls out to them, where are you? He calls out to Adam, where are you? And so what we see right there is the creator engaging his creation in a way. And and, and they're totally hiding behind some trees, hiding behind the fig leaves that they created. And they're expecting for God to come in. And I've read through a a ton of commentary, commentaries that talk about like the judgment and the wrath of God is going to be poured on them. That the the voice that they hear is this mighty thunderous wind and they get afraid and then they hide and they think, oh my gosh, this is it. You know, God is going to reveal himself in a way that he hasn't revealed to us, revealed himself to us before. He's going to lay down the hammer. He's going to, whatever, whatever is going through their mind. Because now remember, now they're operating under, under a different way of thinking. Satan has so polluted already their thought processes, thought process, that they actually lose trust for the God who created them. They no longer can trust that he's going to judge them fairly. So they hide. But God, again, does the opposite, right? I don't think we actually see 
what we think of as wrath and judgment, we see God approaching his creatum with tenderness and love and care and follows up with that question of where are you? Um, I don't know, I mean, a lot of us in here have little kids, so we've played hide-and-seek with our little kids. Um, I play it with Caleb all the time, and a lot of times I'll be like, hey, Caleb, you know, go and hide. And so what he does is he, like, he'll be standing right in front of me, and he'll just cover his eyes, you know, and he's right there. He hasn't moved, and for, for some reason he thinks that he's, like, completely disappeared. So he's totally hiding in plain sight. I mean, I could see him. Um, and then it's, in a lot of ways, exactly what we do. And it's exactly what Adam and Eve does. They know in some way that God knows exactly where they're at. And then they choose to hide in a place where they know that God will find them eventually. But God wants to play this dangerous game of hide and seek, not just with Adam and Eve, but also with us. And so we do the same thing. As we sin or we're sinned against, we feel the weight of shame of the things that we were done, not just of the things that we've done, but also the things that were done to us that push us to believe the lies of the accuser. And we almost fall for it all the time. And so we create this distance between ourselves and God and we hide. But the beautiful part is that we're always hiding in plain sight. God always sees us. He knows exactly where we're at. In Psalms 139, um, and yeah, I've got these really big yellow markers because I actually was putting the markers in my Bible, and I'm like, I better put one in Genesis because I know I'm going to forget where the book of Genesis is if I don't have it on there. (laughs) So I've got these big uh, yellow markers here. And let me just read uh, from Psalms 139, starting from verse 7. It says, Where shall we go from your spirit? Or where shall we flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If If I make my bed in Shoel or however you say it, you are there. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, in any way a uh, paid staff member of the church. I'm not a pastor. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, a carpenter and a uh, uh, site supervisor. So if I mispronounce names, forgive me. Um, if, I make my, my big, if I make my bed and chill, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is as light to you. Well, I'm sorry, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. In some mysterious way, God gives us the space, the room, to run and hide. God is so confident and secure in being God that he doesn't chase us down with the sense of urgency. That he lets some of these things begin to take root and take 
us on this journey in life so that maybe, I mean, think about it, right? So that maybe that the things that shame us, the things that produce such an intense amount of guilt in our lives that causes us to split from reality and live a double life among the people that we know and love about the church that we participate in, that somehow God wants to even take those broken things and use them for his glory. One of the best quotes that I've heard was actually from the new movie of uh, Dracula. Um, it's a uh, story of, uh, of Vlad the Impaler. He meets this master uh, Dracula in a cave with a couple of men and uh, his men are quickly overcome and Vlad the Imperial barely makes it out of the cave uh, alive, but something sticks in him and he recognizes what well, this person has this incredible power that he's never seen before. Um, and then some events happen. Um, the Vlad and most of his army is killed. Some of his children are killed. And then he finds himself in this incredible place of total desperation because all he wants is actually vengeance. He wants to slaughter his enemies. So he remembers and he goes back to this cave to encounter um, this master Dracula um, and he walks in and meets with him and, and the line of this the quote of what he says is actually what kind of man because he's like you know you're here I'm going to kill you I'm going to eat you you know um, that's probably more like what's going to happen but he asks him what kind of man climbs into his own grave to find hope and Vlad the Impator looks up with a twisted face and he says, a desperate man climbs into his own grave to find hope. And you see how, in that very same way, as followers of Christ, we're people who actually live with a great sense of desperation for our Savior. Not that he's going to rescue us, well, we live with the anticipation and the hope that he will rescue us and make us completely perfect people, that all the shame and all the guilt will just kind of roll off our back. But it doesn't. We know that the reality is as long as we live on earth, that we will continue to experience the brokenness of life, that people will continue to sin against us, and we will also continue to sin against people. But God allows us to hide nonetheless. So it was probably about 16 years ago, um, right around there, maybe a little bit earlier, that I was part of a team, uh, a church plant team, back in the Humble Park, Logan Square area. Um, and I'm not going to get into the full um, content of my story, but I'll, I'll just give you some real brief story. Um, it probably was one of the hardest times of my life, one night. I'm not classically trained in preaching or being a pastor or dealing with people. Um, but God had us plant the church. We had a church going for a little while, and then some things in my life just started cropping up that perhaps I was aware of, perhaps I wasn't aware of, and God was using those things to create a greater sense of desperation in my life so that I can run to him and turn to him, but I decided not to. I decided to turn to the things that satisfied me that brought me a sense of temporary relief, that allowed me an opportunity to escape from the reality of the pressure of actually being involved in people's lives. 
And so my life just completely and utterly tailspin fell apart. The church fell apart. Friends had left me. I just didn't know what was going to happen afterwards. And again, my life was just in this tailspin. There was like three people, and actually um, three people are here with me today. Um, I called them, invited them. They, did, they graciously came, and we maintained a friendship uh, over, over the years. Uh, two of the guys I don't consider as friends. I consider them as literally my brothers. Uh, of course, Kim being the third person. As I shared my story with them, as I lived in confession with them, I was fully expecting to be rejected, cast aside, because the things that I was sharing weren't necessarily bizarre in nature, but they were dark and twisted nonetheless, and very painful, uh, especially, for, especially for my wife. But the most amazing thing happened by the grace of God and by His mercy that each one individually drew near and closer to me. They embraced me. They loved me. They cared for me. They gave me room and enough space to fail and flounder in front of them, to live a life as if I was not a believer. They showed me compassion. They showed me tenderness. In the same way, like in Matthew 8 with Jesus and the leopard, he cried out for healing. And Jesus reached down and says, yes, I will heal you. And he reached in and touched his ugliness. And in the same way, God used these people to reach in and touch my ugliness. And gave me a picture of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't always that the person that's forgiven just automatically becomes a great and awesome person. Forgiveness oftentimes lies in the reality that we walk with that person in the brutality of their life. And we continually show them grace and mercy as they walk through it. And there were times, even after that, that I would sit alone on the couch in the middle of the night and I would allow voices to enter into my head Uh, calling me uh, to kill myself, speaking into my heart of how worthless I was. I was in this intense, demonic oppression just that I was allowing to come over me, and I was allowing myself to be identified with some of these things. And the thing that began to slowly pull away and break the back of these lies was to live somehow a life of confession with those that had drawn near to me. In James 5, um, chapter 16, it talks about confessing our sins to one, one another so that we can pray and so that we can be healed. And the most vulnerable thing that we can do is to live a life of confession with each other. In her book, Brene Brown actually says, shame derives its power from being unspoken. And the problem with hiding, even though God gives us that space to hide, the problem with hiding is that the more that we hide, the longer that we run, the more we actually begin to forget who we are and who God is. And actually, it seems like the more lost we become, the more distant 
we become from our families, from our friends, and ultimately from God. So even though there's that space, we need to recognize that the longer we continue to run in this, the longer we continue to hide, the more lost, at least in our minds and in our heart, it appears that we're becoming. The harder it is for us to break out of that. So the hardest thing, and it, is, and it isn't prescriptive, the hardest thing to do is to hear God's voice and take his invitation to live a life confession when you hear his voice, when he asks you, when he asks us, where are you? It's to begin to reveal the truth to the God who already knows everything, but begin to, but to, begin to reveal the truth to the people around us who know us the best. And then it's not like, you know, standing up here and confessing and throwing that, all those things out to everyone in this room because the reality is we can't handle that. I mean, collectively, corporately, we, maybe we think we could as a body of Christ. Maybe we think, oh, no, no, we're mature enough and we know the word enough and we could definitely do that. But I don't think that's possible. And I don't think we're called to do that. I don't think we're called to live a life exposed with everyone that we encounter. Actually, I would say sometimes that actually winds up being counterproductive in a sense that I can use that in my own life to be, even begin to heap more shame on myself because now I begin to live a life of wondering, man, what does this person think of me? You know, I kind of threw that out there, and Brene, ta- Brene Brown talks about now having this vulnerability hangover after living a life of confession. I say, well, hey, if you want to avoid that hangover, <laughs> share with a few people. Share with a few people that know you. Share with a few people that you know love and care for you. Share with a few people that you can trust. And let's just say maybe, maybe you're new to this. And maybe you don't have those kind of people. Can I just encourage you to take a relational risk and throw it out there to somebody. Somebody that would hear someone that would listen. And there still might be a possibility that they may not necessarily receive it the way you think that they should receive it. And perhaps even for a season, that even produces just a bit more wanting to run and a bit more wanting to hide. But you continue to risk and throw yourself out there. Because we know that, at least what I've come to learn, that my healing or the process of my healing didn't occur simply because I confess to my wife and to my two good friends. I think that's a, it is an important and critical part of the Christian life to confess our sins to one another as a body of Christ so that we can grow and become stronger and united with each other. But that in itself doesn't produce the type of healing that the gospel is talking about. It's a good process in entering into community, but ultimately confession and healing can only occur through Christ. Can only occur through what Christ has done on the cross. And even if there's no one that's received you or accepted the things that, you, that you've done or had or, or, or give you an ear to listen to, 
in some way. And it, and it is a hard way because we're created to be relational. And we hold on to the one single truth that we are already healed. That the weight of sin has been taken off our backs. That the weight of shame has been taken away from us and has now found ownership in Christ. And so we remind ourselves of that truth. We remind ourselves that Christ has taken all that away. This is going a lot faster than I thought, guys. But that's okay. So I ask, right? For us to hear his voice. In the darkest time of our soul, when we feel the most uncared for, when we feel the most unworthy, when we feel the most unloved, when we feel the most distant from community, when we feel, when we feel the most distant from our family, and still in a very pr- profound way, can you still hear his voice? Can you still hear him asking, where are you? And it's, again, like the same way that I'm playing hide-and-seek with uh, Caleb. And I say, hey, Caleb, hide. And he jumps in front of me and he covers his eyes. And then I'm like, Caleb, where are you? And then he opens up his hands and he's like, oh! And then he realizes, he realizes, one, he, he sucks at playing hide-and-seek. <laughs> and two, I was in front of him the whole time. And no matter how lost we think we are, no matter how well hidden we think we are, once we respond to the Savior from that question, where are you? And we say, here I am. And we open our eyes and we realize that he has always been right in front of us. He's never left us. He's never abandoned us. He's always stayed right there with us, watching, waiting, Loving, protecting, not protecting. Using all these things for his glory. And I love in, uh, in Zechariah 3, it's a vision of uh, Joshua and the high priest. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you. O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and closed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Again, 
just like little children, when we realize the Father has always been standing in front of us. He is always so eager, again, to remind us of the story of our salvation. Over and over and over again, he repeats the story into our hearts over and over and over again. He says, Heaven, I rescued you before the flames consumed you. Heaven, I come down and removed all the sin and all the shame from you. Heaven, I satisfied the wrath of my Father. Are you not Are you not the reward of my suffering? And we sit and we listen. And then he retells the story again when we hide again. And then again and again and again. The Satan is always gonna Satan is always gonna be our adversary. Satan is always going to stand in accusation against us. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it talks about him being a roaring lion looking for those to devour. And I'm here to say that Satan's teeth has been broken at the foot of the cross. That the lies that he spins, that the deceit that he shares with you has no power. Because there's another lion, the Lion of Judah, that has rescued us, that has saved us, that has snatched us out of the fire. And because of that, we're people who are free to live, free to love, free to be loved, free to engage, engage, free not to engage, free to connect, free not to connect, free to fail, and free to fall. Because the Father knows exactly where you're at. And we're people who are already there, but not yet there. And it will continue to be that way until the last moment of our breath and he's revealed to us in glory. So let's strive to live that life of freedom with each other as a church, as a body. I know. I mean, this is not part of my sermon right here, so I'm just going to close this. And in, in here, there's the makeup of so many different groups of people, so many different backgrounds, so many different experiences, so many uh, levels of, of wealth and not wealth, the stories of good stories, stories of bad stories. We live in completely and utterly different neighborhoods, uh, different races, different makeup. And we can pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, yeah, that's awesome, that's wonderful. And, in, and, and, it, really, and it really is. There's, there's, there is an incredible beauty in that. Uh, are we seeing each other in the one commonality that we have, and that could only be Christ, to draw us all together to be a body, to love each other, to respect each other, to comfort each other, to care for each other, to love each other's children, to listen to our stories, to live with patience and endurance from one another. All that 
can only happen through the power of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we, we admit at times, most of the time, Lord, we don't trust you. We don't trust you with our story. We don't trust you with our pain. It's hard for us to understand how you, the creator of the universe, can dwell with such broken people. But you do. And it's your joy. And you search for us. And you care for us. And you love us. Father, I pray that through your power and your power alone that we would live as free people. People who have been found. In your name I pray. Amen.